You wouldn't have guessed it from the title of this lecture, but this is, in a way, about the significance of someone's name, Joseph's name. Now, I'm not sure why, but it seems to me that nowadays we rarely notice that our names are meaningful. Sure, in literature, we are delighted when a character's name turns out to be significant. The names Knightley, or Gulliver, or Odysseus, or Oscar Wilde's Ernest come to mind as examples. But in fiction, names are a matter of the author's craft. Of course, he will sneak symbolism into a character's name. In nonfiction, or in reality, the possibility that a person's name is heavy with significance does not usually cross our mind. Even when we choose a name at the birth of our children, we tend to be aware merely of name associations, people we know who have had that name, or perhaps a saint that we hold dear. Once in a while, when we hear a name we've never heard before, we might wonder what that name means, but this is not true as a rule. How many of us, for instance, have ever reflected on the fact that Mr. Gardner and Miss Gardner's name indicates a devotion to horticulture? And even fewer of us ever attend to the archaic or derivative meaning of our other tutors' names. If you did, you'd know that our faculty contains a barrel maker, a shoemaker, a farmer, a warrior, and someone who wears a short hooded cloak. <laughs> fewer still among us reflect on how appropriate or ironic such names for such people might be. If we even notice the original meaning, we laugh at it as merely a historical curiosity. Dakon, by the way, means son of Cain. That's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, among the ancient Jews, however, the opposite is the case. They were studious about the meaning of a name, precisely because it was intended to somehow reveal the person named. The Old Testament regularly calls the reader's attention to the meaning of the name of an important figure. Think of Adam whose name signifies the soil, Adama in Hebrew, from which God molds him, or Isaac, whose name signifies the laughter of his parents at the prospect of his birth, or Moses, whose name means one drawn forth from the Nile. Sometimes a name's meaning is stressed when the name is changed. Think of Abram becoming Abraham. Think of Sarai becoming Sarah, or Jacob becoming Israel. But most frequently, the meanings of these names is noted at the original christening, Thus, in Genesis alone, nearly two dozen people receive quasi-etymologies for their names, etymologies that are somehow reminiscent of a circumstance of their birth. In addition to the Jew, many other Old Testament names look quite significant in Hebrew, yet Scripture does not call the reader's attention to them. Some of these are obvious. Elijah means Yahweh is God, or my God, actually. Joshua means uh, Yahweh is the Savior. Other names are subtle but fitting. David seems to mean the beloved one, and Solomon means man of peace. Others are almost disturbing. Saul is spelled the same as Sheol, the Hebrew underworld. Yet scripture is restrained about these names. Perhaps the sacred author's silence indicates that these name meanings are too obvious to mention. Or maybe commentary is absent because these particular names contain mysteries to be wondered at rather than discoursed upon. But of course the problem for us is that all that assumes we know Hebrew. One of the secondary goals, secondary goals of this talk, therefore, is to encourage you when reading scripture to pause and reflect on the names 
And for some of you, I hope this might mean learning Hebrew or Greek. Or for the less ambitious among you, it might simply mean regularly looking up the name meanings. But I'm hoping that for all of you, this lecture will be a vivid reminder that the poetry of Scripture, even in the allegedly dry historical books, is in fact quite rich. When you probe these riches, I think you'll find new depths and sometimes fugue-like themes that unfold in surprising ways throughout the sacred text. And my vehicle for so motivating you tonight, and really the principal focus of this lecture, is the patriarch Joseph. The significance of his life and that of his sons for the whole house of Israel. And all of this as hinted at through the meaning of his name. Now Joseph is one of those fascinating Genesis characters who nevertheless is referred to almost not at all in the rest of the Old Testament. Although his story spans 14, 14 chapters of Genesis, more than a quarter of that already substantial book, in the rest of the Old Testament he's referred to by name only a dozen or so times as opposed to David or Solomon, for example, whose lives are leitmotifs throughout the books of the prophets, or as opposed to Moses, whose life dominates the entire Old Testament. In this lecture, I will argue that Joseph, too, in a, a hidden way, embodies a spirit that runs throughout the Old Testament, and remarkably even into the New, and that this spirit is related to the identity and purpose of the Messiah. Now, because, as I said, the story of Joseph is long, while I'm interested chiefly in its greater significance for the house of Israel, if you're expecting a thorough study of these 14 chapters of Genesis, I'm sorry to tell you that you're going to be disappointed tonight. I'm going to leave many details of the Joseph story untouched, and therefore many puzzles you may already have unresolved. Nevertheless, it will be strange to discuss Joseph's story without giving a brief overview of it, so let me begin by recalling the basic sequence of events, especially noting those details that figure into my thesis most. Joseph, you'll recall, is the second to last child born to Jacob, the first to be born to Rachel, the woman Jacob preferred over Leah. As the son of the beloved Rachel grows, Jacob is apparently indiscreet about his favoritism for Joseph, honoring him with the long, colorful cloak, the very cloak that he will one day look upon with such horror. In these youthful days, Joseph finds himself dreaming a pair of cryptic dreams about bowing sheaves and stars. While it's not clear whether Joseph thinks of the dreams as anything more than unusually vivid and peculiar, his jealous elder brothers, and even Jacob himself, recognize them as claiming a future dominion over them all. The brothers are particularly contemptuous of these dreams, whether because they believe them to be fraudulent and merely indicative of Joseph's ambitions, or because they fear them to be prophetic, and yet, like Oedipus, they refuse to accept their own destiny and want to frustrate it. So they turn on him, casting him into a dry cistern, and even consider killing him, though finally they agree merely to sell him to the Egyptian slave owners, soaking his blood, his cloak, excuse me, in blood, a beast's blood, and telling their father he'd been torn apart by a wild beast. In Egypt, Joseph is first a slave to Potiphar, whose wife tries to seduce him. Upon his rebuff, he is cast into another pit, a dungeon, uh, apparently for life. If you pay careful attention, you'll notice that he sits in that prison for more than 10 years. While in prison, he interprets another pair of prophetic dreams, those of his cellmates, 
and these prophecies come true, which eventually leads to Joseph's being tasked with interpreting the dreams of the Pharaoh. Again, two dreams. And saving Egypt through a careful storage of grain during the seven fat years. Thereupon, Joseph is given plenipotentiary powers over Egypt, becoming second only to Pharaoh himself, and marrying the daughter of an Egyptian priest. Then, when the seven lean years strike, Egypt thrives while the land of the promise suffers, and Jacob sends ten elder brothers to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph is now in his late thirties, and twenty years have passed since the sons of Israel had betrayed the one they had sarcastically called that master dreamer. And now they do not recognize him, though he recognizes them. After several interviews with his brothers and subjecting them to some rather puzzling tests, apparently to to discern the state of their souls, Joseph finally reveals himself, effusively forgives his brothers, and is reunited with his father, Jacob, and his brother, Benjamin. The family of Israel is then saved from the famine in the Promised Land and welcomed to Egypt with high honors, thanks to Joseph. Then, by way of epilogue, upon the death of their father Jacob, the eleven worry that Joseph's forgiveness was just a show put on for their father's sake and bow before Joseph like the sheaves as they beg for mercy. Just as they had doubted his innocence when he shared with them his dreams as a youth, so late in life they doubt the sincerity of his forgiveness So he joyfully expounds to them the good that came out of the convoluted chain of events. Although your intentions were evil, Yahweh's were good. Thanks to their happy fault, the God of their father had saved them. Again, like Oedipus, the prophecy was fulfilled through the very acts intended to undermine it. So let this crash course suffice to help you recollect Joseph's life. I want to now revisit some of those episodes through the lens of Joseph's name. When her long-awaited firstborn opens the womb, Rachel picks a name that echoes her joy, crying out, God has taken away my reproach. This is the first quote in the handout. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The two verbs, take or take away, and may he add or he will add, are Asaph and Yosef, the first of which is cognate with the latter. And the latter is a perfect homonym for the name Joseph. Yosef also has the sense of grow or increase or even repeat, and its principal cognates mean collect and count up and gather. Although Rachel's first etymology expressed gratitude to God, taking away, right, her reproach, her second and more perfect etymology takes Joseph not so much as the fulfillment of her fertility, but merely as a down payment on it, the first fruit of a greater harvest to come. Recalling the psalm that compares sons to arrows in a father's quiver, we might say that Rachel and Leah are in a sort of arms race of begetting children to Jacob, whether on their own part or through their handmaids. And Leah is winning handily, (laughs) having already given him seven children on her own and two more through her handmaid, while through uh, through her own handmaid, Rachel has borne for Jacob only two and none on her own. Indeed, after these maybe ten years of marriage, Rachel has probably begun begun to fear that she is barren. Thus, Rachel is not merely in a competition with Leah, 
Rachel also knows about God's promise to her husband's father and grandfather that they would bring forth a multitude more numerous than the stars and the sands. Rachel here at the dreamt-for birth of Joseph may be declaring her faith or her hope that this is just the beginning and that she will now become the chief matriarch through which the great promise will be fulfilled. However, she will be largely disappointed in this dream. Rachel herself adds only one more to Jacob, apparently many years later. Jacob will name this final son Benjamin, overruling the name Rachel herself had given him with her last breath as she died shortly after childbirth. That name had been Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. One suspects that she was grieving not only at realizing that she was about to die, but also because she feared that her dream of great fecundity, of her adding a great multitude to Israel, was about to be crushed. So it seems to me that a question should cross the reader's mind. Is Rachel right about her hopes being dashed? Should the name she had picked for her firstborn, Joseph, be taken as merely presumptuous optimism to which reality just would not conform? Or did Rachel, like that same son, for a moment unknowingly possess the gift of prophecy? and sing out a dream that would come true, but in ways that she could not imagine. In short, what is providentially being signified when Rachel named Joseph, may he add? In what follows, I'm going to try to persuade you that this name had a prophetic meaning. But to bias you toward my proposal, consider this rhetorical question. Is it likely that the inspired text would, as it were, emphasize the meaning of Joseph's name as it does, merely to record a piece of biographical trivia that having more children happened to have been on Rachel's mind when Joseph was born. If you feel only a mild pressure to concede this point, let me increase the pressure. For regardless of any particular theory about Joseph's name, Scripture itself seems keen to keep the name at the front of the reader's mind, at least the Hebrew reader mind, throughout the Joseph story. For in the Hebrew, the verbal form of the name keeps popping up Let me give you a few examples, and these are on the top of the handout. At the beginning of the story in chapter 37, when Joseph first provokes his brothers with his dreams about the wheat sheaves bowing down before his own, it's said that the brothers, they usually translated their hatred increased, but it literally says they added to their hatred of him. A few verses later, after Joseph recounts his dream of the stars, the sun, and the moon, Scripture repeats that the brothers added to their hatred because of his dreams and his words. They Josephed their hatred for Joseph. (laughs) Rachel declared him a pledge of future additions to the house of Israel, but the sons of Israel added only to their hatred of a member of that house. Likewise, versions of Joseph's name turn up again in the middle of the story, when, as the viceroy of Egypt, he's gathering grain throughout the land to store for the lean years that are on the horizon. Here we are told that Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to number it, for it was without number. And we see something similar at the end of Joseph's story when Jacob calls the brothers together to prophesy over them, saying, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what may befall you in the days to come. Our words for number and gather here are cognates of Joseph. As if to say, Joseph ceased to add up the grain and add yourselves together rather than gather. 
And after announcing these prophecies, Jacob concludes with this same word, I'm about to be gathered or added to my people. Indeed, the chapter ends with Jacob drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And here, too, both the verb was gathered and even the verb for drawing up of his feet are two more Joseph cognates again. Now, I've not studied the Old Testament as a whole well enough to know that the Joseph cognates are exceedingly rare. Full disclosure, my Hebrew is not very good, so I read it very slowly. I have, however, spotted it in uh, one other context, and it seems significant. The operative verb, when the Lord makes his promise to Abraham, commanding him to look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them, so shall your seed be. Joseph the stars, if you can Joseph them. And again, the same usage of, Joseph, of the Joseph cognate is repeated when Jacob recounts this same promise, where his descendants will be as the sand of the sea, which will not be numbered, which will not be Josephed. Notice that most of these phonetic echoes of the name Joseph have two elements in common. They belong to words of prophecy, and they signify an addition that augments or draws together members of a family. Abraham is told to add up the stars, and Jacob the sand of the sea, thus signifying the vast seed of Israel to come. Rachel herself predicts Joseph adding to her line. And Jacob collects his sons together to hear his prophecy, then gathers his members together and adds himself to the number of his deceased ancestors in Sheol. Even the exception to this model seems to fit in an ironic way. When the ten brothers of Joseph are described as adding to their hatred, they are not prophesying but rejecting a prophecy. And they begin not to think about adding to but about subtracting from Israel by slaying their brother. Now, maybe all that seems a little thin, a little circumstantial. So let me nudge you a little bit further through the fact that Scripture constantly associates Joseph himself with growth and fecundity of the people of Israel. Examples are legion, but uh, for starters, as I said earlier, just as Joseph saves his family by bringing them to settle in Egypt, in a sense, adding Israel to Egypt, Joseph himself prefigures this union by marrying Azanath, the daughter of an Egyptian priest, and then realizes this unity or this gathering still more profoundly in their two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, each of whom Jacob later elevates to the status of being full tribes. Thus, Jacob and Joseph have forever introduced Egyptian blood into the line of Israel. Further, this idea of fecundity, so central to the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, is explicitly associated with Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob, on his deathbed, gives his prophetic benediction on the twelve brothers. This is the quote towards the bottom of the page. Most of the sons of Israel receive a brief and mysterious one-verse prophecy. None of them receives more than two verses, except Judah and Joseph each of them receiving five verses. The prophecies for 11 of these sons are sometimes frightening or ambiguous or just plain weird. For example, the blessing to Issachar is that you will be a big-boned donkey. <laughs> Even the prophecy to Judah, which contains the well-known promise that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, ends with the promise that Judah's, quotes, eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth 
white with milk. What does that mean? Yet only Jacob's prophecy to Joseph is clearly positive throughout, and it begins with an emphasis on fecundity. So this is the quote at the bottom of the page, so the handout. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers fiercely attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him sorely. Yet his bow remains unmoved. His arm, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by God Almighty who will bless you with bless, the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that couches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the eternal mountains, the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is separate from his brothers. This elaborate declaration seems to say that just as after Joseph suffered unjustly, he received divine blessings, so too, through his seed, he will be the chief recipient of the mighty blessings that Jacob himself had received. The first and fourth verses seem to reference both Rachel's dream of fecundity, uh, the great family line, right? In the imagery of a vine with roots, with a constant source of fresh water growing unhindered by walls meant to confine it. And in the language of the blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the language of the blessings of heaven above almost echo Abraham's own counting of the stars of heaven. Indeed, it doesn't seem like a stretch to say that if we Christians did not know that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah, one might easily expect, based on Genesis 49, that the promise about the seed of Abraham would be fulfilled principally through the line of Joseph. This expectation would, in fact, be strengthened upon reflecting on the twists and turns of Joseph's life, which culminated in the deliverance not only of the tiny primordial nation of Israel, but also of the great kingdom of Egypt. In short, Joseph seems to have been a Messiah of sorts to the house of Jacob, and his seed at the end of Genesis to be becoming the chief tribe of Israel, as his brothers had once so feared it would. I'll come back to the notion of, of uh, Joseph's messiahship. But first, let me say a bit more about the headship of the tribe of Joseph that begins as Genesis ends. Joseph, remember, has two sons, each of whose names was picked for its significance. You've got the table there on the, the bottom right, I guess, that help you keep track of the sons. The firstborn he names Manasseh, which means makes one forget. For God, Joseph believes, wants his joy in Egypt to be so great that he forgets his 13 years of suffering from the betrayal of his brothers to his slavery and false accusation in the house of Potiphar to the decade or more rotting in Pharaoh's jail. Indeed, Joseph at this point even wants to forget his entire life before those sorrows, declaring the desire to forget, quotes, all my father's house, end quote. But Joseph and Asenath then have a second child, whom he names Ephraim, because it means fruitful, saying, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, although it's tempting to interpret Joseph's purpose in selecting this name, fruitfulness, right, as a continuation of Rachel's choice of his own name, adding to, right, this interpretation is excluded by Manasseh's name, since it suggests 
that although he has pined for his family all these years in Egypt's dungeons, he now wants to detach his hopes and dreams from the destiny of his family in Canaan and focus on his young family in Egypt. Joseph never loses his trust in God, in the God of his fathers and grandfathers, but he no longer seems intent on returning to the land of promise and is now open to however and wherever Yahweh will use him, even among his captors. Thus, even when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers later, when they come to Egypt, he describes himself as belonging to a new family and even being its head in a way, saying, quote, God has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt, end quote. Jacob's perception of this separation may be part of what motivates him when they're all finally settled in Egypt to formally adopt Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons, as it were, alongside Joseph, saying that they will be, quote, mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Notice that this, uh, in this adoption, the first and second born of Joseph are given a status equal to or perhaps even exceeding the status of the first and second born of Jacob. To this, Jacob adds, quote, in them let my name be perpetuated and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, end quote. Jacob further specifies this restoration of the houses of Joseph and Israel in a way that leaves its mark on the rest of the Old Testament. For as he adopts Joseph's boys, he seems to be overcome with the spirit of prophecy, crossing his arms, right? Crossing his arms and giving the blessing of the firstborn to Ephraim, the secondborn. When Joseph protests that his father must be confused, Jacob responds, quote, I know, my son, I know. Manasseh also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother Ephraim shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations, end quote. From then on, Scripture seems to give the tribe of Ephraim a kind of primacy, primacy over that of Manasseh. Ephraim is usually mentioned before Manasseh in the listings of the tribes, such as during the initial census in the book of Numbers. Ephraim is named as one of the four principal tribes beside Judah, Reuben, and Dan in the principal positions around the tabernacle and the Israelite camp, also in Numbers. The tribe of Ephraim brings its offering to the tabernacle consecration before the tribe of Manasseh. And likewise, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses sings of the tens, ten thousands of Ephraim, but only of the thousands of Manasseh in an idiom of praise that you probably saw at Mass, I think, yesterday, uh, irks King Saul when the citizens of Israel sing of him and David in a very similar way. Indeed, when the Israelites are finally at the point of conquering the land of Canaan, half the tribe of Manasseh, along with Reuben and Gad, refuse to enter, but settle in the Gilead, a region northeast, northeast of the Jordan. Thus, part of Manasseh separates itself from the leadership of Ephraim, and most of the chosen people, and even from the promised land itself. Further, given the way Ephraim in a way seems to inherit the mantle of Jacob, it's maybe not surprising when, during the sojourn in the desert east of Canaan, two heroes arise from within the ranks of Israel, Caleb of the tribe of Judah 
and Joshua of the tribe of Ephraim. Joshua himself had been Moses' right hand in all things since they had left Egypt. And now he and Caleb, in the fateful scouting expedition into Canaan that results in the 40 years of wandering, are the only ones confident in God's help. The entire generation of a newly liberated batch of Hebrew slaves would be cursed with dying off the desert over 40 years because of this lack of faith, all except Joshua and Caleb. Only the children under the leadership of the son of Ephraim would enter and subdue the promised land. Appropriately, then, the psalmist later sings, Ephraim is my helmet and Judah is my scepter. This casts light on the fact that although, uh, although generations later, under David and Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant will rest in the temple of Jerusalem, in the tribal lands of Judah, of course, still for the first hundred years or more of the settling of the Holy Land, the tabernacle and the Ark rested in Shiloh and Bethel, both in the territories allotted to the sons of Joseph. In fact, the Ark's eventual removal from Joseph in the north to Judah in the south itself bespeaks a connection and even a tension between the two chief tribes. For in the later history of the chosen people, under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom splits in two. Although historians typically refer to the two, uh, two halves as the northern and southern kingdoms, Scripture never does. Scripture usually describes them as Judah and Israel. Israel because most of the tribes are in the northern kingdom. So the greater part held on to the name of the whole, even though technically the northern tribes broke away from Judah rather than vice versa. If you consult the map on the handout on the second page, you can appreciate the relative size of Ephraim and Manasseh and the other tribal territories that together constitute what was called the northern kingdom, or what we now call the northern kingdom. However, another less common way scripture speaks about the two kingdoms is to call the south Judah, still, and the north Ephraim, or even Joseph on occasion. This idiom is most common among the prophets. For, ex- for instance, Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones records the word of the Lord saying, quote, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the children of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them together into one stick that they may become one in your hand, end quote. You'll find the northern kingdom referred to as Ephraim also in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and others. But the prophet who does this most frequently is Hosea. To give just one example, I think I included this one on the second page there. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot, Israel is defiled. The pride of Israel testifies to the Lord's face. Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the land of, in the day of punishment. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. End quote. The allusions to Assyria make it fairly clear that the name Ephraim here does not designate just one tribe, but all the northern tribes that first ally with and then are betrayed by and conquered by Assyria. 
Notice how when Ephraim and Judah are compared, Ephraim is mentioned first, as if to indicate that both would be punished, but Ephraim first. This too fits the history of the defeat and exile of the people of Israel. First the north is conquered by Assyria, and then decades later the south is conquered by Babylon. But here we see something new. These passages show us quite clearly that whatever the patriarch Joseph's personal merits, the tribe of Ephraim is not always a hero in the story of the chosen people. The second book of Kings chronicles the northern kingdom of Ephraim's revolt against the line of David in Judah, her consequent rejection of the temple in Jerusalem, her intercourse with the Gentiles, and finally her swapping of monotheism for an idolatrous syncretism and all the abominations that naturally come with paganism. Thus, although Psalm 80 says that the Lord, quote, leadest Joseph like a flock, Psalm 78, not far away, says Yahweh has, quote, rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Unlike their father, the sons of Joseph are themselves not pillars of spiritual purity. So whatever association we find between Joseph and the northern kingdom, it no more implies the latter's moral rectitude than the association between David and the southern kingdom implies that Judah itself is after God's own heart, as was David. However, although both the north and eventually the south are conquered and carried off to the Gentile nations, an important distinction must be made between them here. Namely, Judah's conqueror, after 70 years in captivity, allows Judah to return to the land of promise, to resettle it and to begin again. Nothing similar happens to the exiled northern Israelites. The kingdom of Ephraim never returns. The tribes led by the sons of Joseph are so assimilated into pagan Assyria and its subject nations that when Assyria decides to repopulate the desolated northern territory, she finds very few identifiable sons of Israel uh, to send back. Thus, most of the Assyrian colonists settling in Israel have at best, at best mixed Hebrew blood. And those who do return end up practicing a corrupt form of the ancient faith and are the progenitors of the Samaritans of the Gospels, who are, for this reason, spoken of so disparagingly by the Jews at the time of Christ. Just as Ephraim had become a Gentile in its heart before she was conquered and physically added to the Gentiles, by the time of Christ, Ephraim is genetically indistinguishable from the Gentiles. I mention all this about the, the later fate of Joseph's tribe because it relates to one last aspect about the life of Joseph that I want to develop in this lecture, but it will take a few minutes to show you. So for now, ruminate on this thought. If Judah, and later Judea, embodies a greater fidelity to God and pure Israelite blood, the territory and kingdom of Joseph, the north, embodies a tragic but perhaps providential fusion of Israel and the Gentile nations. Like the patriarch when he bound himself to Egypt, but also let his father adopt his Egyptian boys, the kingdom of Joseph has gathered or added Israel to the Gentiles and the Gentiles to Israel. Now I can return to something I said a few minutes ago, uh, that there is something messianic or Christ-like about Joseph the patriarch. As a segue, I want you to consider the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, 
the first of the Gospels, and the one said to have been written specifically to the Jews. Matthew's Gospel opens with Christ's genealogy, which ends with, quote, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, end quote. Notice that the lineage of Jesus, Jesus, like that of Joshua, his namesake, is traced through that of Joseph, or someone named Joseph, a son of someone named Jacob. Interesting coincidence, right? We can go a little deeper here. Since Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, occupies a central role in the opening chapters of Matthew. Compare it to the Gospel of Luke. If there is reason to believe that the opening chapters of Luke, recounting as they do the Annunciation, the Visitation, the details about the night at the Nativity, the Presentation, the Finding in the Temple, if the Gospel of Luke, if it appears to record the memories of the Blessed Mother, the opening chapters of Matthew appear to be told from the perspective of St. Joseph. For after this gospel just touches lightly on the Annunciation, it focuses on Joseph and his reaction to Mary being with child, the angel's explanation to him in a dream, of course, the nativity, the wise men, Joseph's second dream, where the angel counsels flight into Egypt to escape Herod, and his following that advice, a third dream wherein Joseph is told it is now safe to return to Israel because of Herod's death, and a fourth dream in which Joseph is warned to avoid Judea where Herod's son Archelaus is now ruling and instead to settle in Galilee. Now, did you catch those two additional parallels between St. Joseph and the patriarch? The first was that Joseph, too, is a dreamer. God communicates with him solely through dreams. This is all the more striking when we realize that this is all but unique in the New Testament, except for the Magi, who amid these very events are warned away from Jerusalem in a dream, only Joseph, among the figures in the New Testament, receives divine instructions through a dream. Yes, I think that's right. Zechariah, John the Baptist, the Blessed Mother, St. Peter, Mary Magdalene, St. Stephen, they all have visions or are actually visited by divine emissaries. And Saints uh, Paul, James, and John hear voices from heaven. But only St. Joseph hears God's commands in his sleep, like his namesake from the book of Genesis. There are, of course, differences between the dreams of the patriarch and the dreams of Joseph. While the former dreams only about the future, the latter dreams only about current events. Whereas the dreams of the patriarch and of those around him are murky riddles, St. Joseph receives literal instructions combined with clear explanations from an angel. That said, the likeness seems more remarkable than the difference. For one thing, in both Joseph's stories, God is the source of the dreams of Israelite and pagan alike. And in both cases, the goal is the salvation of Israelite and pagan alike. But the second parallel between the two Joseph stories has even more punch. Namely, both Josephs travel into Egypt, leading their family into the pagan land of the Pharaoh, and do so not by choice but in order to escape certain death in, of all places, the land flowing with milk and honey. And by making this sorrowful journey, each Joseph sets in motion a chain of events that will save the world. This very connection between these two peregrinations into and out of Egypt is highlighted by Matthew's gospel itself, when, right at this point in the narrative, 
It cites the prophet Hosea, saying, quote, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, Hosea is literally referring to the Hebrew exodus from Egypt at the time of Moses. Matthew, however, sees Hosea's words as prophecy, or perhaps the exodus itself as a figure of the Christ child's exodus from Egypt. In the one case, the exodus is led by Moses, with young Joshua, son of Joseph, at his side. In the other case, the exodus is led by Joseph, with another young Joshua, his adopted son, at his side. Now, to avoid the charge of heresy, let me be clear that none of what I said should be taken to imply some sort of conspiracy or historical revisionism about the family of the Messiah, such that the line of Joseph, not that of Judah, is Jesus' bloodline, or that I'm not secretly proposing that Jesus is, in fact, a descendant of Joshua and not of David. Uh, Genetically, Jesus' human nature came through Mary, who, like St. Joseph himself, is of the tribe of Judah. And at any rate, both the Old Testament prophets and the Gospels clearly and repeatedly describe the Messiah as the seed of David, as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and sometimes even as David himself. What I am saying, however, is that Scripture, or at least Matthew's Gospel, seems to want us to associate Jesus with Judah and Joseph, both tribes. The one physically, or in some sense according to the flesh, and the other we might say spiritually. Besides the previously noted connection uh, between Jesus and Joseph in conjunction with David, there are several other more subtle ones in Matthew's Gospel, but in the interest of time I'll note in passing a straightforward one that I started to refer to a moment ago. Namely, in this Gospel, the same genealogy that begins with, quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. That's the first verse of Matthew. So the same gospel that starts the genealogy with that, calling him the son of David, also ends with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So both David and Joseph are spoken of as Jesus' father, even though, strictly speaking, neither is. Of course, there are likenesses between the lives of Joseph and David. So the double parallel with the life of Christ itself might seem unsurprising. Both David and Joseph are raised in a family of shepherds. Both of the youngest or nearly the youngest in their families. Both rise from humble origins to positions of vast political rule. Both become saintly leaders of their people and so on. Still, noting the likenesses between, between them brings the differences into relief, I think. For all his virtues, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then orchestrated the murder of his innocent subject, Uriah. Whereas Joseph steadfastly repelled the temptation to adultery with his master's wife, even when it meant condemnation. And when he was ascendant, he never committed a crime against even the guilty, his brothers, when they fell into his hands during the famine. More importantly, however, the life and mission of Joseph prefigures that of Christ better than does the life of David. It is Joseph, for instance, who is first mocked and then out of envy betrayed by his brothers, the house of Israel. They disrobe him and plan to kill him, but then decide to sell him to pagans for a few pieces of silver, expecting his eventual death at the hands of the Gentiles. Both the dry cistern and later the dungeon Joseph calls the pit, a fairly transparent image of death and entombment, I think. 
Yet from these pits, Joseph is brought forth alive. And this rising, for both Joseph and for Christ, happens for the sake of bringing grain, the life-giving bread, to a starving world, thereby saving both the pagans and the very brothers intent on his death. In short, Joseph the patriarch more clearly prefigures the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah, the one despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The one whom many of the Jews eventually came to see must be the Messiah, in spite of the fact that he didn't fit their expectations about what a Messiah should look like. The life of Joseph seems to be unlike that of David, at least insofar as the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets most often seem to want us to remember him as the great warrior king who slaughters Philistines and completes the conquest of the land of Canaan, the one who makes Zion the final resting place of the ark and after whose reign Israel has its golden era of peace and prosperity. This life, too, is clearly an image of Christ, but not so much of the Christ who came in weakness, but of the Christ who will come in strength. Finally, let me introduce you to one more confirmation of this understanding of the relation of Joseph and David to Jesus. This time from the Talmud, the written collection of rabbinic traditions, commentaries, and disputes about the Old Testament. The Talmud was compiled and expanded by the Jewish scribes over several centuries, beginning before the time of Christ and continuing for hundreds of years after. And all the Jews have never quite treated it as inspired the way Scripture is. They have always treated the Talmud with profound respect and even authority. You might compare the status of the Talmudic writings for the Jews with that of the writings of the Church Fathers for us. Now, there is a long-standing tradition whispered now and again in the Talmud and in several of the Dead Sea Scrolls from the 1st century, even 2nd century B.C., that there would not be one but two messiahs one who would come first, suffer on our behalf, and be slain, and one who would fall, rule as a king, and complete the work of the first. The latter Messiah, the Talmudic rabbis, commonly referred to as Mashiach ben Dawid, that is, Messiah, son of David, and the former as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph. Although mentioned several times in the Talmud, perhaps the earliest explicit reference to the double Messiah tradition is in a section about the Feast of Tabernacles in a midrash or commentary on Zechariah chapter 12 about the day of the Lord. Zechariah records Yahweh, and this is the quote about the middle of the page, the second page. Yahweh, or Zechariah records Yahweh saying that on that day, quote, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for the Harad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. Quote. Now, as Christians and good readers of the Gospel of St. John, we zero in on the line about looking upon the one they have pierced. And we have an interpretation of this passage in mind. But the Talmudic writing on this passage focuses on other concerns, asking, and this is the, the quote that continues on the handout, what will they be mourning for? Rabbi Dosa ben Harkanas and the rabbis disputed this. One said they will mourn 
the Messiah, son of Joseph, who has been slain. The other says, they will mourn the evil inclination, which has been slain. Now, if you say they will mourn the Messiah, son of Joseph, who has been slain, then that is as if it is written, they shall look to me as the one they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. But if you say they will mourn the evil inclination, which has been slain, then why would they mourn? Surely they would rather rejoice. Why will they weep? It's typical of the Talmudic writings. They, don't, they often don't clearly settle things. They just sort of ask questions and argue with each other. That's what the, the records are, often just records of disputes. But it leans a certain direction, obviously, right? It's kind of a reductio for the first reading. Here the tribe recorded the dispute, recording the dispute implies that the Messiah, son of Joseph reading of Zechariah makes a lot more sense than the slaying of the evil inclination reading. The evil inclination is just a, the Jewish expression for what amounts to concupiscence, the effect of original sin. Notice that the passage does not propose the Joseph reading, but speaks of it incidentally, as though it was already well known to the reader and to the rabbis involved in the dispute. The belief that there will one day be a dying Josephite Messiah seems to have well-established currency by that time, which is probably in the mid-first century A.D. So the tradition itself is probably a little bit older, maybe much older. Going on a page or so later, and this picks up the quote that is at the bottom of the second page there, the commentary refers now to both messiahs by name. The rabbis taught the Holy One, blessed be he, says to the Messiah, son of David, may he be revealed speedily in our days, ask me for anything, and I shall grant it to you. As it is written, let me tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, I have fathered you this day. Ask it of me, and I will make the nations your domain. When Messiah, son of David, sees Messiah, son of Joseph, slain, he says to him, Lord of the universe, all I ask for you is life. He replies, even before you asked, your father David prophesied. He asked you for life, and you granted it. Here the notion that the son of Joseph would, become, would come first is implied, though the son of David seems to witness his death. So they may be being imagined as contemporaries. But again, the dual Messiah theory is not explained or defended. It seems to be already a commonplace in the discussions among the rabbis. So where did it come from? Now, because this is the oldest explicit reference to the two messiahs, at least in the Talmud, it's also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can only speculate, and in the interest of time, I won't. Perhaps we can talk about it in the discussion period after. But this much is clear. This tradition among the Jewish rabbis is a sign that we are at least in good company when we are drawn to associate the two patriarch brothers with Christ. Of course, whatever the precise origin of this Talmudic tradition, we Christians know that it's only an approximation to the truth. There was and is only one Messiah. However, it's true that Jesus' incarnate presence among us does come under two guises at two times and with two at least superficially different purposes. For he does come first in humility, born to a poor couple, sleeping in an animal's slop dish, working menial labor as a carpenter, to one day preach, be rejected by his brothers, and finally be sold off to foreigners to be tortured and die and thereby fulfill his mission. When he comes again, however, he will stand manifest in his glory to destroy those who resolutely reject him and to rule peacefully those who have repented of their contempt for his rule. Still, because these two comings are not so utterly distinct, if you look closely, 
I hesitate to propose a neat and tidy division of the two Talmudic messiahs according to the two comings of Christ, Joseph for the first coming and David for the second coming. For as we pointed out already, during his earthly life, Christ is explicitly and consistently spoken of as belonging to the tribe of Judah and spoken of as the son of David. This is why his disciples keep expecting him to assume the throne of Judea and, to try to, and they try to convince him not to enter Jerusalem when he foretells his passion. Further, Joseph himself is closely connected with the northern kingdom and David with the southern. But Jesus evangelizes first and foremost the Jews, the remnant of Judah from the south. The northern kingdom remains largely in exile even at the time of Christ. And when the Samaritans are evangelized in the New Testament and the Gospels, it's with a certain reservation or restraint. Thus, Jesus' first coming is at least as Davidic as it is Josephite. Indeed, the two comings are so thoroughly entwined that one cannot easily make a hard and fast division between them. For Jesus' first coming ends not in his death, as the simple Josephite Messiah narrative would suggest, but in his resurrection and ascension, thus revealing the glory of his kingship as conqueror of sin and death. Whereas Joseph needed to be rescued from the pit and the Talmudic Josephite Messiah merely is slain and is no more, Jesus Christ rises from death by his own power. The notion that the Messiah might also be God and therefore cannot be killed in any irrevocable way apparently had not even entered into the dreams of the rabbis. If it had, perhaps they would not have felt compelled to divide the Messiah into one who saves by being slain and one who saves by conquering and then ruling for all ages. In short, at his second coming, Christ will not start again, beginning where he failed at his first coming, but will merely make manifest his previous conquest of sin and death. Truly, his first coming begins as Josephite, but it ends as Davidic. And it is this guise as the son of David, the promised land conquering warrior king, which more completely reveals the majesty of his divinity. And this guise endures even now until his second and final coming. Thus I'm proposing that at both comings, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Joseph. At both comings, he will be humble, for in both he is a God who has stooped to become a man. And at both comings, and at all times in between, he offers one sacrifice, his very life for our sins. And at both comings, he displays his power to conquer and rule, not just Judah, and not just all 12 tribes of Israel. As it was said back in Genesis, quote, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth, end quote. By way of summary, then, we've seen that Joseph the patriarch plays a significant role in the history of Israel. He was Israel's first savior, saving the house of Jacob from certain death, and in a way, even from their sins. His tribe, then, adds to itself by doubling in size, becoming Ephraim and Manasseh. And then, at the time of Exodus, takes a position second only to Moses in the person of Joshua, who 40 years later leads them into the Promised Land. Then the tribe falls into shadows again in the time of the judges and kings Saul and David, at which time the tribe of Judah takes the position of prominence. Under David's grandson, the kingdom splits and the tribes of Joseph come to the fore again, 
but only to gather with the Gentiles in their spiritual harlotry. And finally, to be physically conquered by and added to the Gentiles. Thus, by the time that several hundred years later, Caesar Augustus calls for a census of the known world, only a slight trickle from the tribes of Joseph had made their way back to the land of promise. In those days, the Messiah was born to a man named Joseph Joseph of the tribe of David. Jesus, like the patriarch and Saint Joseph, is content to live in obscurity and poverty until the time of his mission is at hand. Then his power and wisdom are revealed to a rabble of Jews, but his full majesty and kingship remain veiled. The clearest sign of the presence of God among us in the person of this son of Joseph is shown only at the end in the depths of his love when he dies for his brothers, gathering both Jew and Gentile into his family. The very men who gather together to reject and torture and murder him. This final act under the guise of Joseph the Patriarch then gives way three days later when the crown of a king is assumed and the God-man rises up out of the pit, taking with him his former enemies whom he had added to his very self. Thank you.